Welcome to Grace again. We're glad that you're here and we're a church that meets in two locations, four services, and uh, thanks for being with us. We're in a series in Judges, just going through the book of Judges, and as Forrest kicked us off last Sunday and also Cameron uh, at Paulding, uh, we see this repeated cycle throughout the book where people sin, fall into idolatry, and then there's oppression, and then there's repentance for the sin, and then deliverance. And that happens all through, cycles through several times over and over the book of Judges, and we're going to pick it up where we left off, which was at the end of verse 3. So I'd like you to turn there to Judges chapter 4. Uh, that's page 254 in your Bibles if you're getting one out of the pew rack. Um, and it's like the seventh book of the Bible. If you get to like first and something, first and second this, first is, you've gone too far. Back it up a little bit and you'll find Judges. One more thing before we get into it. Uh, we have the, the parking lot that's been kind of disrupted with our construction. Sometimes we will be able to drive through that even though it's gravel. If they direct you through, that's okay. Of course, as soon as I tell you that, probably next Sunday will be all blocked off. But do whatever the parking lot guys say, all right? It's okay. You can handle it. It'll all be good. So just, just trust them with your nice new car. I know we don't have a great record from a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, <laughs> hang with us. All right. Are you ready? Judges chapter 4. This is the story of Deborah and Barak. We're going to see what happened in the history of Israel. Verse 1, then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. The, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he, meaning Sisera, had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now, just a little break there. So again, there's this cycle and Israel has turned away from God and now this oppression has come in. And this is not God being spiteful. This is God being loving even though that this severe oppression. It's better to go through a temporary few years of hell than an eternity separated from God in real hell. And so God lovingly allows this bad stuff to happen to bring Israel to repentance to come back to him. So it keeps on going here in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold... The Lord God of Israel has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Nephtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. 
Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Nephtali and together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. And Deborah also went up with him. Now, I got to tell you right there. In that verse, in verse 10, there's a phrase in there where he, we're talking about going on that journey. In verse 10 where he said, went up with him, uh, that, that is really talking about um, something that, I'm sorry, it's in verse 9. Journey that the Lord, that you're about to take, is interpreted two different ways. And the way you interpret this Hebrew phrase, and it can be interpreted either way, is really has everything to do with how you see Barak in this story. One way is more pessimistic, and that's actually translated a different way in the NIV, where it says something to the, the effect of, nevertheless, because of the way, as, as Deborah talks to Barak, she says, because of the way you're going about this, I'm going to deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman, sort of like as punishment. And this sees uh, Barak as having a lack of faith. He's timid. He won't do it because he says, I'm not going to go unless Deborah comes with me. Unless you come with me, I'm not doing it. And it sees Barak kind of in a negative light. But there's another way to translate this phrase. And it's just about him taking a journey. And it's much more neutral. It's just, by the way... As you're going on this journey, let me tell you, as kind of a, a prophetic statement of fact, that Sisera is not going to be delivered into your hands. He'll actually be delivered into the hands of a woman. And I actually believe, and that's the way the NASB has it. And again, this Hebrew phrase can be taken either way, but I think the second way, the way we have it, is probably the most accurate, and I'll tell you why. One of the reasons is that the fact that he asked for Deborah to come with him, that, that's not such a slam. Think about it. Barak is told by Deborah, God told me to tell you to go attack this huge army. And so why wouldn't he want to take Deborah with him? Okay, well, if God's talking through you, why don't you come along with me? Because some stuff could come up you know, as we take, off, take on this overwhelming force. And the other reason is, actually, Hebrews 11 in the New Testament talks about the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. And Barak is mentioned as, as one of these men that had great faith. Well, if he was all timid and would only do it with Deborah, it doesn't sound like he belongs in that, that passage. But here's the deal. Barak knows that Sisera's force is, is humanly unbeatable. Uh, they are... They have taken over the plains. Joshua, on the conquest of Canaan, was never able to fully rout these guys out because they had chariots. They owned the flatlands. They owned Ohio. You know, they had their area. And these iron chariots were like the tanks of that day. They were like the drones, the, the armored helicopters. I mean, there was really nothing that could, could beat them. And so when Deborah tells 
Barak to, to assemble 10,000 men to take on what we think is an army of 40,000 plus 900 iron chariots. This was a major mismatch because an iron chariot would cut through, 900 iron chariots would cut through 10,000 foot soldiers like a hot knife through butter. I mean, it, was just, it, would, it would be a disaster. But Barak says, come on, let's do it. And so he takes on the challenge. So the stage is set. He meets with Zebulun and Naphtali, people from these two other tribes of Israel and some other tribes join him. They meet at this kind of cone-shaped hill called Mount Tabor, and Deborah's with them, and they're ready to, they're locked and loaded, ready to go. And then down on the plain, Sisera hears of the plan. He comes to intercept them. He's got this 40,000 uh, numbered body of troops with 900 tanks, and they're ready, and everybody's arrayed for battle. And just when the action's about to begin, there's a side note, and that's in verse 11. Let's check that out. So right as we're expecting the action, it says, now... Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the, his, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And we're all going, what? Well, what does this have to do with this story? We have this side note. doesn't seem to have anything to do with the story. We'll find out later while this is included. But they're saying as these two armies get ready to go at it, there's a side note. Oh, hey, by the way, this one guy comes with his family. And his family you know, used to be related to Moses' father-in-law in a way. So they've been friendly with Moses. But he's actually, they have peace with Sisera. Kind of a neutral guy. This guy's camped nearby, near where this battle is about to happen is kind of what's going on. That's, that's this whole side note. But before we continue with the battle, I, I want to just point out something that always gets brought up or, or does a lot of times anytime we're talking about Deborah. Because some people will use the story of Deborah as a proof text to say, uh, to, to teach about women's roles today. And they'll say, because of what Deborah did, because she was... Uh, used this, she was, had the office of a prophetess and also judged Israel kind of in a, in a private way. They would come to her rather than like the other prophets, her going out to everybody. That this is kind of a proof text that women, you know, that there's no limitations on gender for anything. Of course, other people look at that and they say, well, actually, you know, there, there's some problems with that. And basically, it comes down to this. Two of the rules of hermeneutics, just two of the rules of how we interpretate scripture. One is this. We need to be very cautious about using a text, especially in the Old Testament, that's a narrative text, which just means it's just telling us what happened, telling us the story about what happened. We need to be very cautious about using a story telling us what happened to say that's what should happen, or even more so, that's what should happen today. Not everything that happened in the Old Testament is what should happen today. It's just telling us what did happen. So that's, that's one rule we need to keep in mind. And the second rule is, anytime we're wondering that a topic has come up, but it's not being taught about specifically, we always use 
we always let the specific teaching on a certain subject interpret and enlighten the vague teachings that we think might be being taught about a subject. Does that make sense? In the Bible, we use the passages that are actually teaching about something to kind of override things that we think might be inferring something. Make sense? Wow, I've, I've lost you in that. You're all like gone. Talk about my side note. It, 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 that's, that didn't work very well. But anyway, so you just need to keep that in mind. And, and as you keep those rules in mind, what you're going to find out is the same way in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same principle keeps happening. Although this doesn't sound great in our culture today, but we don't interpret the Bible through our culture. We interpret the Bible through itself. We interpret the Bible through, as God's word. But anyway, and that is we see the same thing, Old Testament and New. That women are just as gifted as men are, that women are just as competent that men are, that women are just as spiritual that men are. But God has reserved two areas of leadership that he says men should step up and take care of. And one is leadership in the home. If there's a husband in the home, he's called to take spiritual leadership of that home. And two, today is the church, or in the Old Testament, was a priest. There were never female priests. So we're just saying, no, this really goes with a complementarian view. You it, shouldn't be used as a proof text to teach something for us today about women's roles. But anyway, back to the story. Ready to get back to the story? Because you hated that one. All right, let's go back to the story, back to verse 12. Here we are. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of, ben, of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera called together his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. And sometimes I wonder, as they're standing on the slopes of Mount Tabor, by the way, in the, in the hills, chariots don't work so well, but on the flatlands, they rule. And then Deborah's standing there, with Barak, and she's saying, okay, there, the Lord's gone out before you. Go. You know, and probably Barak's going, I don't see the Lord going out in front of me. What I see is 900 tanks, you know, lined up, ready to mow us down. But he doesn't say that. He, he moves. He goes. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera. And all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. This is really interesting. If a chariot's the tank, the most advanced weapon anybody could have that would cut through infantry like a hot knife through butter, then why is this guy dismounting, getting off his chariot and fleeing on foot? Well, actually, chapter 5 tells us that. Both chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Judges talk about this story. And we find there the unseen hand of God in chapter 5 talks about how God sent torrential rains and that flooded the Kishon River that keeps being mentioned. And then all of a sudden the chariots are bogged down. And now instead of the chariots giving these Canaanites a huge advantage... 
They've become a liability so much so that these guys are bailing out of their chariots and they're hightailing it out of there. It continues in verse 16. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. But now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Herber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Herber, the Kenite. Oh, here's the side note coming into play. Verse 18. Jael, a wife that's here with these people camping out nearby, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here, that you shall say no. You see what's happening here? He's tired. He's been fighting all day. He, the, the, the army flees, but Sisera goes another direction, and he ends up in this, this camp, camp area of these kind of innocent bystanders. And a lady invites him in, and then she covers him with rugs to hide him, and then he's thirsty, and she gives, gives him milk to drink, you know, like goat's milk or whatever. And what do you think's happening to him? Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's, he's about gone. But Jael, Herber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted. Yuck. Not as yuck as Ehud, but yuck. I mean, the t- she, she, she nailed it. I mean, she just all the way just nailed him to the ground and then we don't even need the last three words right so he died yeah you think yeah we we get that and behold as Barak pursued Sisera Jael came out to meet him and said to him come and I'll show you the man whom you are seeking and he entered with her and he and behold Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, right about here at the end of the chapter, we're kind of expecting to read, and then they had peace for X amount of years, because that kind of always happens. But it doesn't happen. What happens is Judges chapter 5. Now, Judges chapter 5 tells the same story that Judges chapter 4 tells, but it's done in praise and in song. It's like chapter 4 is for the history class, and chapter 5 is for the music class. Chapter 4 is like a photograph, and chapter 5 is like an impressionist painting. And basically, this is the celebration song that talks about God's unseen hand in bringing about this victory where Israel is able to tear off and be delivered from their oppressors, the Canaanites. And that's kind of how that all goes in in chapter 5. 
And as a matter of fact, um, I think that teaches us something. You know, we have recorded in Judges, we have the history, but then we kind of have the theology, the, the, uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff. And I think that's the way we ought to remember our own lives. We remember the history of things that we've been through and the events, but I think it would be good for all of us to then try to reflect what God was up to during all those events in our lives. Does that make sense? So we're not only remembering everything historically, what happened, but we're also remembering everything theologically, going, meaning while things were happening with us, what was God up to in our lives or around us when all that was happening? Does that make sense? That's how we should view our own lives. And that's exactly kind of how we have this picture in Judges 4 as compared to Judges 5. It's kind of interesting because Judges 5 includes some stuff that Judges 4 didn't tell us. Chapter 5 tells us that God brought these torrential rains, that the Kishon River flooded. It also tells us that before this battle, that Israel wasn't using their roads. It was kind of deserted. They were a oppressed nation. People were afraid to do business. They kept kind of quiet and, and you know everything was just kind of going that way. It's just it was they, sheer domination. And not only that, it also tells us some kind of personal things about Sisera's family, for example. Sisera's mother, in verse thirty, toward the end of chapter five, she's waiting for her son, the general, to re, to return. I mean, they work on chariots. Things go pretty fast. He's overdue. He should be here. And he's, she's with her ladies and waiting, and they're, they're kind of wondering, you know, why, why is Sisera tarrying? And, and, of course, she doesn't know. We do. We know he's been destroyed. But, but she's waiting and waiting. But here's the interesting part. They comfort themselves, Sisera's mother and her ladies in waiting, comfort themselves by the knowledge that, oh, well, they're probably delayed because they're raping Israeli women. As a matter of fact, if you look at the word in verse 30 that's translated maiden, that's also a very, it, what it really is, it's a very polite translation of a word that refers to women's reproductive organs. And so th that's how the Canaanites viewed the women of Israel, that they were just nothing but what you would take your lust out on. Not only the Canaanites, but the Canaanite women talked about Israeli women in that way. So it's not, hey, so why the delay? Hey, don't worry. It's just, hey, there's one or two women that they're all getting to rape and, and make sex slaves, and they're getting the spoil of the land, garments, embroidered garments, and we're going to get a cut of that when they get back. Real nice. That's that culture of the Canaanites that God was saying should not coexist with Israel back in the days of Joshua that was never stamped out so we kind of have that going on as we continue it's like okay well we talked a little bit about you know what the story shouldn't teach us well the question is what what should the story teach us what can we learn from this I think one thing maybe the biggest thing that we can learn from judges is just a little saying I heard not too long ago it didn't have anything to do with judges but it, to me it perfectly applies with God, there are no spiritual grandchildren, only spiritual children. It's kind of an interesting statement. With God, there are no spiritual grandchildren, only spiritual children. What we're talking about there is that second generation. 
Nobody has a relationship with God because their parents had a relationship with God. If you're depending on that, that does not get you a relationship with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? It can help if you have parents pointing you to God. You have to have your own relationship with God. You can't depend on, well, my parents have a relationship with God. Not good enough. God doesn't have spiritual grandchildren. He only has spiritual children. So that's the number one important lesson that I think we learn from every judge in the whole, all these cycles that keep happening through the book of Judges. And that's kind of sobering, especially it's sobering if you're a first-generation Christian. First-generation Christians, it's a little easier. I mean, you're living your life for you, you find out about God, and you sort of turn it all over to God. Second-generation Christians, not quite so easy. Because second-generation Christians, typically, they're already living a moral life. And a lot of times, they're not seeing the sin in their own lives, how serious it is. They already feel that they're kind of on God's side. And sometimes what can happen in that second generation is there's no real, uh, there's no real change. There's no real decision to, to follow God. There's no real understanding that, that we have to repent. There's no real conversion. It's just, I'm kind of doing this, this is what my family does. And you're kind of relying on your morality and your knowledge of God and, and you're, you're crutching on that rather than having a real relationship with God based on the fact that you deserve to be separated from him forever for your sin and he's come and died for you. Rather than throwing yourself on the mercy of God, what he's done, Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. And it's sobering to us when we have kids because it's the same thing. Here, here's what I see happening as a pastor all the time. People, they'll become Christians if they're first-generation Christians, maybe as a young person or a teenager or maybe early in life, and then they have children. They start bringing their children to church, and they start growing as Christians, the parents do. And then as they mature as believers, they start sometimes getting a little lax in their Christian faith. And the way they'll do that is they'll start experiencing that, hey, we have freedom, that it's not legalism. It's freedom, and, and God's given us some, some areas to operate in, and sometimes they get a little sloppy with their Christianity. They maximize their freedom at just the point in their life that their kids are focused on their parents and their relationship with God. And then what the kids see is this kind of a little bit sloppy, and it's not real apparent to the children that God is number one in their life. God's in there. Yeah, we do church. Yeah, we come to church, and that's kind of important. But it's not, they don't see God as number one. And a lot of times it's because we as parents, we let everything, we, we let everything get in between us and God. For example, on Sunday, you're here. But especially this is the time of year where all of a sudden people are gone all the time. And it's, you know, well, all of a sudden... Church takes second to sports or camping or whatever. I'm not saying you should never miss a, one or two Sundays a year. But if you're missing one or two Sundays a month, that's, a, that's probably a priority issue in your life. And your kids see that. And then when they become 28 and they're not into church and they don't come to church and they're not following God. And you're wondering why. And it's because you taught them that God wasn't number one. That we follow God when it's convenient. 
We got to be careful about that. It's scary. There are no spiritual grandchildren. God only has spiritual children. I think another thing that we can learn all through these judges is just what we learned in chapter 5, that we should praise God. We should praise God. If we've become a spiritual child of God, we should just have this praise. That's what Israel does when they're delivered. They go through this cycle. They're following God, then the next generation comes, and they're not. They're rebelling against God, and they get into sin and idolatry. And then bad things happen, and they're oppressed. And then they call out to God, help us in repentance. We did a wrong thing. We shouldn't have turned away from you. Then God gives a deliverer. Well, if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a spiritual child of God, you understand that. God's offering you a relationship that he's died for you. We should praise. And Jesus Christ came as the once and for all deliverer. And we should praise him in song, in prayer. And our prayer life shouldn't be all about, God, here's, all the, here's the 10, 11, 12 things that I need from you today. Our prayer should be like Judges 5. Our praise that we sing about should be like Judges 5. Look what you've done. Look at my God. Look how faithful you are. Look at what happened here where we're praising God for who he is. That needs to be part of our prayer. Not just always asking, but taking time to praise God. And as we do that, that makes us stronger Christians. It gives us more confidence to live out the Christian life. Because we're focused on who God is and not our own inadequacies. Or the own obstacles that we see before us. Even the odds that are stacked against us. We're not all focused on that. We're focused on God's faithfulness. Another lesson, third lesson we can learn is that spiritual apathy is condemned by God. That's what keeps happening. Israel turns away from God. They get spiritually apathetic. And what? God brings judgment. God allows bad things to happen. God uses evil men to bring that judgment. God judges sin. And then it causes them. It's really for their good because it causes them to cry out. Don't settle for spiritual apathy. It's condemned. We see this in chapter 5. It's a whole list. The beginning of the chapter is like an Israeli tribal hall of fame. It sings about the tribes that were faithful to the call. Ephraim. Naphtali. Zebulun, the, the, the tribes that came and, and followed Barak and answered the call and were part of the Bible. And then it has the hall of shame. It starts listing the tribes that didn't show up, Dan, Asher. It talks about Reuben, how they heard the call, they thought about the call, they sat around and talked about the challenge and what God wanted them to do. But then they collectively decided, nah, I don't think so. Of course, people do that today. You know what God's calling you to do sometimes? You think about it. You consider it. But sometimes you just say, no, I'm going to do a different thing. God condemns that. That's the wrong thing to do. It's the same way with churches. You know, As individuals and churches, we want to be involved in what God's doing. We want to make an impact. But just like individuals, some churches, they sit back and they just kind of focus inwardly. And they're not worried about impacting the world as much. They're just all about me, me, me. And even though they're children of God in some circumstances, 
they're just, you know, they're, it's just all about me, and they're not about getting involved in the fight. Sometimes they're sitting there, me, 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 and then they're criticizing the churches that are involved in changing our world, just taking pot shots. Don't do spiritual apathy. And then the last thing, the fourth thing is, it's just one more reminder that we see all through the Bible. Make sure that you have a real relationship with God. That's the most important thing. Don't drift. Don't follow the culture. Don't drift from God because everybody's doing it. In every generation, each individual makes a decision to either follow God through Christ or reject him. And if they're doing anything but following God through Christ, they are rejecting him. They don't always feel like they're rejecting, but they're rejecting. That's what God says they're doing. Don't slip into that. Don't let that happen. So what are we saying? Make sure your faith is real. Praise God for it. Take time in prayer and song to appreciate God, who he is, his attributes. Don't get up, don't get caught up in spiritual apathy. And invest everything you can to point that next generation your kids or anybody younger than you that you influence to God to make sure that their relationship with God is their own. Do everything you can to show them that God is first in your life, not first when it's convenient, not first when there's nothing else going on, first in your life all the time consistently. Let your kids see that. That's what they need to see because that needs to become a reality in their life for them to become followers of Christ. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the book of Judges and just the reminder that how quickly we can shift from following you to just being ambivalent to you. And God, how that can happen in our families and our generations. God, it happens over and over and over in Judges. And God, you're the ultimate deliverer through your son, Jesus. And we don't want that to happen to us. God, help us to be wise, first of all, that we'd have a relationship with you. And Father, right now we pray, knowing in this room there's some who don't. There's people that are in all different places spiritually in their spiritual journey. And Father, for those who have not crossed that line of faith, maybe because they're a second generation so-called Christian where, yeah, they're just kind of moral, and, and, but they're moral because they want to be respected. They're moral because they want to be well thought of. They're moral because that's just the way their family does it. That's not good enough. God, help us to be moral because we're following you, and that's the most important thing to us. And God, once we get that down, following you, God, that we would avoid spiritual apathy, that we would praise you for who you are, and we would point another direction that they would see in our lives you first in everything we do. 
Father, we pray for whoever might be here as a new person uh, and they haven't come into this relationship with you that's only based on faith. Lord, that that they would consider doing that. Lord, we're, we're, we're glad that they're here and we pray that as a result of being here that they would take steps closer to you to ultimately cross that line of faith one day, maybe today. Lord, and those of us who are Christians, that we'd be faithful to you. God, thanks for loving us. Lord, thanks for the opportunity we have to serve you, to praise you, to honor you with our lives. In Christ's name we pray.